Father, we uh, come before you knowing that there are systems in this world that operate both according to your will and according to the will of the enemy. And for right now, we just consider this a light and momentary inconvenience. Lord, we lay this at your feet. We ask for your mercy and grace. We pray for your wisdom as we seek to resolve this issue. The $9,000 would be yours, Lord, and we could put that to such better use, whether to be missionaries or just operating the church here. We ask that you would intercede, that you would prepare the heart of the individual that we meet with, that we would be able to come to an agreement, that the fine would be waived, and that you would be glorified because you are the one, Lord, that will step in. And help us not to rely on our own devices to take care of this. But Father, help us to be open to what your leading is. If at first we seem to fail, show us a new direction. But help us, Lord, to be a witness to those in sdg And we thank you for the service that they provide. Uh, but Lord, we again ask that you would be the one that would have your hand upon this for the sake of the church and for the sake of your kingdom and father for the teaching here in hebrews we ask for your blessing that you would enlighten us even more what was written to the hebrews back in the first century we pray that we would manifest and um, also have an example in our lives of their successes but help us to heed the warnings that were delivered to them We thank you for your word and its guidance that it is provided for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 1 of Hebrews, we already have dealt with that. It dealt with the identity of Jesus Christ. Remember, it is the superiority of Jesus Christ that is the theme of the book of Hebrews. And we saw that Jesus speaks. He's God's son, not an angel. He is God in human form to be worshipped. He is the creator and he is eternal. In chapter 2, because of the revelation in chapter 1, it goes on to say, therefore, the Jews needed to be more careful not to drift back. And remember, the drifting back was going into the ways of Judaism, the Mosaic Covenant, and actually going back to the temple and offering temple sacrifices and practicing circumcision and making sure you remember the Sabbath day and all the regulations that come with that. This is also spelled out in Colossians where uh, we are not to take heed to those who would have one day more holy than another and watch our diet because we thought it would be more holy. And that issue was in and amongst the Judaizers of the time. And the Judaizers were those who became Christians but said we had to follow the Old Testament practices as well. And he based chapter 2 on this not drifting back on the fact of history referring to the angels, that every word that they spoke was binding, that sinful behavior was always judged. Those two reasons he gave right up front. But then he goes on to say that the world is subject to Jesus and him alone. He is now exalted above the angels and above everything else in all creation. And he explains it was necessary that Jesus became a man, suffered and died because 
The perfect had to come for the imperfect. None of us could intercede for the human race because we are all under sin and all under a curse. Jesus was not when he was born. He did not have that sinful nature. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is explaining all of this. He goes on in chapter 3 and he declares that Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses, to the Jew, he was it. Moses was the one. And whenever they would run across some difficulty, they would probably say to themselves, what would Moses do? You know, there's a Christian book. The theme of the book is, what would Jesus do? Remember the bracelets, WWJD? What would Jesus do? In the book, it talks about how lives were transformed. But the Jew would look to Moses and say, Moses was just at the pinnacle. His wisdom was great. God used him. He established him over and over. And therefore, we're going to hold to the teachings of Moses. But they wanted to do this to their own detriment. And so Paul, who I believe is the author of the book of Hebrews, he goes on again if chapter 2 says, therefore, chapter 3 says, therefore, predicated on chapter 2, therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. And he describes who he is, the apostle and high priest. So not only is he God in human form, not only is he human 100% and God 100%, but he holds the office of apostle. He also holds the office of prophet. He also holds the office of king. He also holds the office of high priest. He is our all in all. There is no one greater than him. And it says who we confess. He is faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So he's using a comparison here. He says, Moses was faithful in all of God's house and Jesus was faithful to the one who appointed him. Jesus has been found, verse 3, worthy of greater honor than Moses. Now, for somebody who was raised on Moses and all of a sudden you have this guy saying, now Jesus is the one who is greater. Now, of course, I believe it is in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses says, another prophet like me will rise from among you. And you're supposed to listen to him. And so they were already given this instruction in the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews says, this is the guy. This is the one that you're supposed to listen to. It'd be equivalent to us worshiping Jesus Christ. And somebody comes along and says, yes, but now there is another. And we're supposed to point to him and look to him. What would we say to that now? We'd say, no way. Jesus is the end of the line. But that is, in fact, like Mohammed from uh, the Islamic faith, they would point to Muhammad being greater than Jesus because he came later. They fall in line kind of like that. And of course, there are prophets that come that claim to be Jesus or claim to be greater than Jesus. But Jesus is the end of the line. He is God. That's where the buck stops, so to speak. And it says he was worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as a builder of a house is greater, has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So he's making a comparison again. He's saying Moses was a servant in the house of God. Jesus was the son of God in God's house. And so Moses was just like the servant who had washed the feet of Jesus. 
And that's how he's making the comparison. And Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus was a faithful son. So he's elevating Jesus above Moses. Not that he's denigrating Moses. He's saying Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus was what he was pointing to. Why was Moses greater? He was an apostle and a high, or excuse me, why was Jesus greater? He was an apostle and a high priest. He was faithful like Moses was faithful. He deserved greater honor than Moses. He compares a house to a builder. Moses is the house. We are the house. Jesus is the builder. He is the creator. Moses was a servant over God's house and Jesus was God's son in God's house. And so he just lays out succinctly why Jesus is greater. There is no one in this life who should or could supplant Jesus. If there's anything that we have that comes Above Jesus, we need to knock it down, we need to crucify it, we need to destroy it. And we do this all the time. We are all guilty of this. Having something that is more important than our devotion to Christ. It can be sleep, it can be family, it can be business, it can be cars, it can be hobbies, it can be ocean, it can be vacations, it can be anything that we raise above Jesus. That we say, okay, I'm going to put Jesus to the side While I do this thing, as I said last week, we all know where we are with Christ. If we are being good disciples on a scale from one to 10, if you had to pick where you were, are you like at a five or are you like at a three or a seven? And how would you rate that? Like, for instance, to get to a 10. Now, I doubt if anybody would say I'm a 10. Right? Because that would be kind of prideful. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a good disciple. Well, first you have a pride issue going on there, right? You're not very humble. And so nobody really gets to a 10. We'll get to a 10 when we are glorified in heaven. But if you start as a one, now that would be a babe in Christ. A babe in Christ, kind of like a bull in a chai in a closet, knows that they got salvation. It's great. No knowledge whatsoever, kind of stepping into a conversation when they shouldn't, put their foot in their mouth, say things when they shouldn't. They probably cuss every once in a while. They have the wrong thoughts and attitudes. And that's a one, right? That's a child. Then you get maybe to a five. What would a five do? Well, they go to church maybe three or four times a month. They do read their Bible maybe once to three times a week. And maybe they attend a second service of some kind. But for the most part, they got a lot of things to do. And Christ is, you know, he's kind of equal. He's side by side of whatever it is that they need to accomplish in their life. Now, going beyond that, what is that? Becoming a disciple, reading their Bible every day, praying to the Lord, listening to messages, making sure you're walking with the Lord, praying constantly. And you might say, well, that's a lot. It is a lot. But how much was paid for you or for me? Everything God gave his son for us. And so it is incumbent upon us to strive to the seven, eight, or maybe nine, maybe one day you're at a nine, the next day you're at a three. I totally blow it, Lord. It's okay. The righteous man falls seven times and seven times he gets right back up and gets on the horse again. Once a horse throws you, you get back on it, right? You start riding again. Isn't that right, Kim? Is that what you do? And even if it kicks you, you still got to feed it, right? So you get in there and, and that's what you do. And that's the life of the believer. And so Jesus is our high priest. Nothing should come in between us and him. 
He is it. We need to clear the path. We need to be solely devoted to him. Now it goes on to say, so as the Holy Spirit says in verse 7, and I'm going to make note of this in a second. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice and do not harden your heart as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your father tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. Now this, of course, is going to be a reference to Psalm 95. He quotes Psalm 95, I don't know, five or six times in this letter. But who is speaking here? It is the Holy Spirit in verse 7. Now, you might think off the top of your head, well, it's probably the Father speaking. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did. It was the Holy Spirit they were testing. Anyway, I said, well, wasn't it God the Father? Well, yes. Well, wasn't it Jesus? Well, yes, they're all one. But specifically, the Holy Spirit is speaking here. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not the false Luke. And we get involved in that. We think it's just this energy that is out there, and he's not a person. He is a person. He is the one that is ruling the church now. Remember, Jesus went to heaven, and the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is in us. The Holy Spirit is through the world. He's the one that even comes and convicts those who are yet to be believers, and he convicts the world of sin and teaches them about righteousness. The Holy Spirit does that all by himself. But he says the Jews in the wilderness, remember, he's writing to the Hebrews, and the Jews are fully aware that they were rebellious in their past history, and it was a blot on their entire community. None of the people, except for two, entered into the promised land, Israel. They all died in the wilderness. They all had to give it up, and they were testing God. Well, how did they test the Holy Spirit? What is it that they did? Well, the first one, I'm just going to read a couple of these scriptures to you. There was a place called Mara, where the waters were bitter. And the people showed up there and they were thirsty after traveling three days and they didn't have any water so this is what they did exodus fifteen twenty four. so the people grumbled against moses saying what are we to drink huh moses huh you know just grumbled against them and what was moses supposed to do god you brought me out here three days no water what you know and then they found this water and the water was brackish uh when i went over to vietnam I've explained this before, but one of the rivers next to the hotel that I could look down and see the rats in the street at night that were look the size of cats. They were going down the street, and I'm like on the fifth or sixth floor, and I can see them down there. Well, the river that was right outside of there was black. It w- I'm not kidding you. The river was black, and there were people fishing in it, and they were pulling fish out of there. And if you drank that water, there is death in the river, oh man. You would not want to drink that water. And that's what the Israelites came across, was this water that was brackish. It was dirty. They couldn't drink it. And that's the only water in the whole area. And they got up there, what are we supposed to do now, Moses, huh? And Moses said, Lord. And so the Lord instructed Moses, throw this branch in there. And he threw this branch in there and the water cleaned up and everybody got water. Well, about time we had some water. You know, and they're just walking away, grumbling at this. So they tested the Lord, the Holy Spirit, by grumbling against Moses. Secondly, 
In the desert, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death because they didn't have any food, right? And so they're grumbling, no food to eat. And of course, what did the Lord do? He provided manna. But that still wasn't good enough. They complained about the manna in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 11. Manna. Manna for breakfast. Manna for lunch. Manna for dinner. Souffle manna. Remember Keith Green? Manna burgers. Uh, manna souffle. Uh, Bamana bread. That's right. Bamana bread. And they, they figured out all kinds of ways to fix this manna, but manna morning, noon, and night. And so they grumbled about that. Remember what the Lord did? Provided for them meat for a month. It was quail and they ate so much of it, it came out their noses. Because they, and it's like, I give you meat and look what you do. It comes out your nose. And I give you manna and what do you do? You complain. You don't have water. What do you do? You complain and you grumble. Well, they complained about the manna. Like I said in Numbers chapter 11, there was also a second time no water at Rephidim in Exodus chapter thir- 17 verse 3. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. And of course, this is where Moses struck the rock. And he didn't, he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he struck it. And because he did that, he did not enter the promised land. You know, so you have these guys just blowing it left and right, testing God. And then Moses goes onto the mountain. You know what happens when he goes onto the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, right? They build this calf. And what did Aaron say? They gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came the calf. Really? It just happened that way. You're testing God. You're lying to Moses. And all these people were involved in idolatry and revelry. And a lot of 3,000 of them, I think, were killed because of that by the Levites. And so the Lord said, that's it. I'm done. Out of the pool. You guys are no longer going to have any fun. It's 40 years in the wilderness for you. And so God was going at him saying, finally, that I'm not going to have any more. And he did this after the spies came back. Remember, they had 12 spies. There are two spies that were good spies, Caleb and Joshua. Those two spies entered the land because they believed that God would give the giants in the land to them. They said, we can do this. Come on, guys. And the 10 rest that went over? No, I don't think so. They're really big over there. You know, there's going to be some problems. We might get hurt. And the Lord was telling them, go into the land. And they wouldn't do it. And so that's when God just cut them off. Verse 10, it says, that is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. He gives two reasons. Unbelief. They didn't believe that God was going to do what he said he would do. And then the second one is unconcerned with knowing the ways of God. Let me say it again here. Verse 10. Their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. Now we have to ask ourselves. Do we trust God in what he says? Do we believe that we can trust in him for everything? And when something isn't answered, do we still trust him? If it's not answered the way we want, do we still trust him? And then secondly, do we know the ways of God? Have we arrived at full maturity? He gets into this in chapter 5 
in chapter 6. And that is one of the dangers. Remember, the first danger was drifting. The second danger was not trusting God. The third danger, the third warning that he is giving to them in this particular epistle is the fact that they won't mature. Now, it's wonderful for a little child to be a little child. I see these little videos all the time of these little babies, you know, and they take their first steps. And it's just fun to watch them, especially the ones where the babies laugh. They laugh for the first time, and you can do anything. You can rip a piece of paper apart, and you go, ha, ha, and they just start going off, and you keep on ripping it, and they just laugh, you know, when babies get to that age, and they start doing that. I, I think I get so much enjoyment out of just watching that. But imagine if your son was 20 years old, and he was still doing that. It, it just, you know, you'd be so disappointed that he never matured. And there's no greater enjoyment that a, a pastor or somebody in ministry can have is to see somebody get saved from in- infancy and be raised up and they actually learn what it is to walk in maturity. There are those who never mature. They are driven by every wind of doctrine that comes along. They're not solid in their faith. They are not aware of what the apostles' doctrines are. Like, for instance, uh, we've gone over this in the past in the basic foundations class. Like baptism, how many baptisms are there? Uh, There's either eight or nine baptisms listed in Scripture. What? Eight or nine baptisms? Yeah, there's eight or nine baptisms. What about the laying out of hands? What does that mean? Come on, buddy, you're out of here, and you lay your hands on somebody, and you drag them. Is that what it means? No, that's not what it means. You know, and about repentance, what is repentance? What does it actually mean? And have we repented? These are basics of the Christian faith. These are things that we need to know so that wind of doctrine, when it comes in, we just stand like an oak tree against it. And by the way, there are continuing winds of doctrine blowing through Calvary chapels. And, you know, we're going to a conference this week and we're going to another one in November. And there is some stuff in there that it goes against Scripture that is being performed in different Calvary chapels. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Calvary chapel guy. And it's be, I, I don't know why it's going off in this direction. There's no new revelation. God hasn't told us to do something new. We don't have another book that just floated down from heaven saying, now I want you to do this. We have the completed canon of Scripture. It tells us what to do and what not to do. But people are flocking to some of these churches in droves, and they call it, quote, the moving of the Spirit, the new apostolic revelation or reformation. You can look it up, new apostolic reformation. And it's just blowing like a wind, not only through Calvary chapels, but through a lot of churches. And so we need to be established in doctrine, being able to defend the faith. And when somebody says, what do you think about this? It sounds great. You can say, no, I don't think so. Run, forest, run. Get away from it as fast as you possibly can. Have nothing to do with it. And I believe it is being perpetrated by people who are actually believers, but they are falling into error. And it can just shipwreck somebody's faith to be doing that. So they were guilty of two things, and that was unbelief and being unconcerned with knowing the ways of God. And so again in verse 11, so I declared an oath 
in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Now, this word sinful, in verse 12, it really is the word evil. So if you read it like that, it would say, See to it, brothers, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And what is intimated here is that an unbelieving heart is a heart that is evil. That's what's being said. And he's warning them again, don't turn away from the knowledge of Jesus Christ and cease to believe that he is the Messiah and cease to believe about the grace and mercy he has and don't digress back into this other system. Learn the ways of Jesus and forsake the old ways. Those things are no longer necessary. And there are movements in some of the messianic fellowships to observe all the feasts and they think that it is more important more holy to do that while yet being believers in christ now if you just want to participate like i've been to a jewish seder a messianic jewish seder and it's fun to see what jesus actually went through but it's not something that i feel we have to celebrate and we can if we want to you know we can go to a messianic fellowship and we can practice some of that stuff but some people think it's more holy more lifted up more important if we celebrate those feasts because they speak of jesus well jesus said no you don't have to jesus came to fulfill the law and its requirements and it talks about entering this rest and of course one of the ten commandments is remember the sabbath day and keep it holy that's the number four and why don't we worship on saturday because that's the sabbath well because we have entered our rest and it goes on to explain about that <clears throat> It goes on in verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly to the end the covenants we had at first. As has just been said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The reason that he is repeating this over and over, Psalm 95 is because he wants to get it into their mind. If a young child is not supposed to do something, if it would be a danger to them, the first time you tell them no, once. But if you see them doing it again, how many times do you tell them no? You go, no, 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 no. Like they're going to do it? One of my daughters, who shall not be named, We told her when she was young, do not put your hand up on the burner on the stove. Red glowing hot, you know, told her over and over, don't do it. As we're in the kitchen, all of a sudden we hear this scream and wail and she put her hand right on the burner. You pull it away and it has the blisters of the ring on that. And no, 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 no. You tell no, no. Had to experience it, right? So it's so pretty. You know, put the hand on there. Uh, it's, it's the same thing here. Paul is telling these Hebrew Christians, don't, don't, don't. Don't do this. Don't harden your hearts. Because their tendency was to harden their hearts. They were going in this direction. And Paul's saying, no, don't. 
And so he's encouraging them as, quote unquote, a loving father or an older brother would do. Don't do this for your own good. How many parents have turned to their children and said, please just listen to my counsel. If you listen, even in the book of Proverbs, you open up first chapter of Proverbs, son, listen to my words and do not forsake my teachings or the teaching of your mother. Just listen to me. If you just do this, you'll avoid all this heartache and all this problem. And what do the children eventually do? They do all these things that you just told them not to do. You put the thought in their head. Well, I could do that. And, but God says, and train up your children in the way that they should go. The same thing happens with Christian believers. Train them up. But the believer has to be willing. If the believer isn't willing, it's all for naught. How many times do you see a rebellious child? <laughs> Maybe you were the rebellious child growing up, right? Your parents told you, no, no, I'm going to do what I want. You can't tell me what to do. I do it, and that's it. And you can just choose to go in the direction, and, you know, what do the parents do? They just shake their head. I told you. But they don't want to say, I told you so. But that's what happens. And this is an admonishment, an exhortation, an encouragement from the author to the Hebrews. Stay the course. Don't get off. The same thing would apply to us. Don't go to the ways of the world to find your satisfaction. Don't go to the false teachers and you think it's something new, a new wind of the Spirit, a new wind is blowing through the churches. Don't believe it for a second. Stay the course, be solid in your doctrine, come to full maturity as a believer. It says, again, I'm going to read this. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And this idea that sin can harden the heart, that's why God calls us to purity. He says in First Timothy, he's exhorting Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for believers in speech, life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Now, of course, he's the pastor of the church of Ephesus here, but it applies to everyone. He repeats this in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So he's telling those in ministry, purity. And he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. Of course, this is all from Paul. He says, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance in troubles, hardship, distresses, and beatings, imprisonments, and riots, and hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love and truthfulness, the truthful speech, and in the power of God. So he calls us to purity, forsaking the sin, because sin will harden the heart of the individual. If we do that, we will hear God's voice clearly. If we don't, if we are involved in sin, then our hearts will harden to the instruction of God. We don't like it. Remember, Scripture talks about money. The love of money is the root of all evil. And if you serve two masters, like if you're serving money, you're going to learn to love one and hate the other. If you're serving money and serving God, chances are you're going to start loving money and not loving God. If you have something else in your life that you love rather than God, chances are you're going to turn against God because the flesh thrives on this world and the things of the flesh. So God tells us, watch out for these things. Then he asked three questions. Who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? 
And with whom was he angry for 40 years? That's a long time to be angry, right? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? By the way, we have a limited scope of what happened over 40 years of their sin. It was probably much bigger than that. They probably were blowing it all the time. And God said, I've been angry for 40 years at this. Verse 18, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. And so that's our instruction. We don't want to fall away. Remember the warnings. The warnings are, don't drift. Don't go away from the instruction you have learned. Make sure that you are maintaining the belief that you had in the beginning. Don't add something to it. Don't pile on. Make sure you're not backsliding in any way. Backsliding, just walking away from God. Make sure you do it with all your heart. For those people who go in the military, especially Marines, hoorah, right? The, the Marines, they're, they're into it. And especially special forces. Special forces are sold out they will die for each other. Remember there is one man, uh, uh, posthumously, he received the Medal of Honor because he saved his fellow soldiers by falling on a grenade. He saw that the grenade was thrown in there and he knew he only had a couple of seconds fall in the grenade and sacrifice himself for the sake of all others or all of them get killed. That's how we need to be as believers. We need to be the special forces. How often did they train these special forces guys? Every day, constantly, they train. They're lifting weights. They're running. They're using their firearms. They're learning how to kill people with their bare hands. And we need to learn how to save people with our bare hands. We need to make sure that we are devoted to God with a devotion that is just undying. And is it hard? Let me ask you, is it hard to go to the gym? (laughs) You can say, no, I love it. I love going to the gym and getting all sweaty and get my heart rate up. And, you know, it just takes so much time out of my day. I really enjoy it. Do you really? Well, it's the flesh. The flesh gets in the way of our pursuit with God. We're supposed to pick up our cross daily, Romans chapter 12. Offer our bodies as living sacrifices. If we do that, we will make it to the end. If we don't, our faith will be scuttled. We'll never rise to maturity. We'll drift away, so to speak. So this is a warning not only to the Hebrews, but it is a warning and admonition and encouragement to us to stay the course. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement that the author of Hebrews has set forth especially for the Jews, Lord, for that is to whom this letter was written. And we pray that we could just learn from their mistakes. Help us not to be like the son or daughter who just listens and hears only, but does not put the word into practice. For we know it brings life and joy. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and the church said, amen.